Yeah, on. Dude, can I just say right off the bat to you, what a great choice. Really? Like uh, listening to this album for the last really several weeks, because it's been a while since we were, uh, since we were here. You approve? That's a great choice. I approve. I approve. Right. Well, that's that's really what it's all about. I mean, if we could do a horrendous show, but you know, if you're happy, then shoot. Yeah. Well, this one will be a horrendous show times two because you know you got to yeah just split up these double albums into two parts. This is our third time doing a double album. Can you name our previous two? Use you your illusion one and two, which actually technically I got I hate to get into semantics, musical semantics, but it's not really double. Oh, album. stop! Oh, yeah, it's not. It's a, come on, come on. Two dude. separate albums released on two separate days. Yeah, technically that's right, but I mean, you know, come on. Basically, a double album, and then of course the other one is El Beatles El Blanco. Very comparable to um, tonight's album. I'm sure we'll spend some time talking about that because there are some other interesting similarities you mean like bands breaking up as they make an album and not having any sort of editing power about what goes on it or what doesn't go on it yeah like bands breaking <laughs> up while they're recording out yeah, like swimming naked with girls yeah yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah for right. sure yeah um this was a very interesting time period for this band but for music as a whole you know, late seventies, very late seventies. You're talking kind of that in between of arena, classic rock post punk started to kind of fold its way in some of that really early new wave. And, and we were sort of coming off of disco and some of that. I mean, it was a time period with a lot swirling around, which gave kind of a blank canvas for a lot of bands, especially established bands to kind of pick their own direction, you know, pick their own path and uh, have some creative liberties, which these guys certainly took advantage of on this one. So yes, this will be a two-parter. I'm going to handle part one right here. Nubs will take, or disc one. Nubs will take disc two, just like we did the previous couple, even though you've corrected me on Guns N' Roses, not technically being a double album. We're going to we're going to go about it the same way, but good to be back, man. We, we haven't recorded in a while. This is probably the longest we've gone. Um, and you know, summertime and things, kids and things and, and, and stuff. But I think uh, we've made a pact to kind of get back after it. So we'll keep, uh, we'll keep delivering the goods, but we've had a little, little summer, summer hiatus here. You know, I think everyone based on our respective schedules, that summer, will not be a robust time for two twins in an album. But I think once fall comes along, we'll get back into our regular rhythm. 
Plus, it took about two months just to listen to this album enough to be able to talk about it. So that's kind of a factor as well, T. But it is good to be back with everybody. But yeah, summer, a lot of uh, lot of lot of things going on, you know? A lot of little sure. side trips and weekend trips and a lot of sun and fun and well, and some concerts. I mean, you you and I yeah. are going to a concert this next week. Go see fish. You know? Yeah, go see fish. Yeah, we told that story in the podcast, right? Go see fish. But we actually are going to go see fish, actually. So that'll be fun. Hopefully not too hot. You know, those August concerts at Pine Knob can get a little toasty. Did you look at the forecast, dude? No. Should it's I? Gonna be blazing. It's going to be so hot. So we're going to blaze on. We're going to blaze on. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you, you set that one up. You know? I did. I did. Yes. Yeah. Well, that'll be fun. And then uh, you went to, when did you go to Chicago? Last Chicago week? and Brian Wilson. Nice. You know, it's crazy to you. I've been a huge Chicago fan for decades, right? And they're one of those bands that like come around twice a year, certainly every summer. Never saw them live until just now. And it was one of those deals. Yeah. Mrs. Dobbs and I always crack up about it. Every time there was a Chicago concert planned, Every time they came, we had something planned. Yeah. Every year was like, let's go see Chicago. Oh, we have this thing or that thing or whatever. This trip. And this was the first year that it worked out. And the first time I've ever seen Chicago live. And they were fantastic. They sounded really, really good. Their fake Peter Cetera guy was excellent. Is that the guy that, um, say, you know, sort of sang some songs with them in the 90s? Like uh, That's Jason Chef. So I was a huge fan of his. Yeah. He's the one who's saying, will you still love me? Oh, and Look Away too, right? Yeah. Well, not oh, no. Look Away. Robert Lamb. Look Away was, um, was the one of the main guys. Here. Robert Lamb. Yeah, he's saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, Jason Chef, I always wanted to see them with him because I really liked the era with him. Yeah. But a few years ago, he retired from Chicago. He was in the band for like 20 years. You know? Yeah. He, yeah, he was. Yeah, he put in his time. He did. So no, it was another another fake Satara. A new fake Satara. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, they were great. It's a fantastic set. They were really, really good. Nice. Yeah, that's a good call. Well, you know, activities, sports, concerts, golf. People, this is golf. Go back to your shanties. We've been doing some of that. Playing golf very poorly. We've been doing. Oh, we've been doing. my game sucks. Yeah, you and me both, buddy. But hey, let's hope that what we've been listening to doesn't suck. And let's find out what that is as we go around and around. New Blaze, what do you got in the hopper, good man? Whether it's on wax, whether it's on disc, because I know you've been getting back into disc or cassette tape or radio or whatever it may be. What do you got? Well... This one, this is probably the most money I've ever spent on a new album, ever. And it's because I bought the Deluxe CD Edition box set and the Deluxe Clear Vinyl Edition box set. And it's finally time on Two Twins in an Album that I get to just gush on about Closure Continuation, the 11th album from Porcupine Tree. Yeah. It'd be hard to keep this one out of my album of the year slot, although there's a couple other things that are certainly contending. But oh boy, has Stephen Wilson and Gavin Harrison and Richard Barbieri done it again. A great album. It's excellent. 
they're just i mean they're just sometimes you're just good yeah you're just good whatever you whatever you throw out there is good yeah what's cool is these bonus editions or these deluxe editions came with bonus tracks and it's one of those deals it's like noel gallagher where like the bonus tracks are like or the b-sides and bonus tracks are like better than the album tracks there's a couple of the bonus tracks that are as good as everything else that's on the main album so Closure continuation is just, it just absolutely has delivered. I'm loving it. I'm listening to it a ton. One thing I've done with this album, T, I've gone super old school. So I bought it, I pre ordered it, and I didn't listen to it at all on YouTube, did not watch any of the videos. I listened to the lead single, Harriden, once, and then never listened to it again until the album came out. And all I've done is listen to it on physical media, whether it be the CDs or the vinyl. I'm only listening to it in physical media. Well, why does that, that matter? I just want that like authentic experience back. Mm. And with an album that's this anticipated, <laughs> I wanted to sort of like tease myself into thinking that it's still 1996 and I'm still listening to records. See, play. I've, I mean, I, you know, I respect that and all, but like I've thrown that out the window. Like, you know what? If it's convenient and I can pop in a earbud and just stream it and listen to it while I'm doing other stuff, then great. You know, I mean, you don't get the warmth of the vinyl. You don't get the full kind of like awesome. I mean, you certainly don't get the sound quality that you get from a CD, especially Porcupine Tree. They sound great. on. Well, exactly. And that that, that, trust uh, me, this is an exception. Like I'm not. I'm not like so snobby about this that I'm thinking about doing this all the time, but on yeah, this one, you haven't gone overboard with the, the no, 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 not at all. But on yeah. this one, I want the full experience and it's been a lot of fun to just kind of keep it old school like that. Eventually I'll put it on my phone and be able to listen to it more, but it's been kind of a refreshing thing to do that. I, I, I recommend that to any listeners, just take one album that's anticipated and just treat it like it's, the old days where you buy it on physical product and listen to it on physical product and, and not have to hear compressed files and all that crap and not have to listen to it through earbuds, listen to it on a good stereo system. That's been my closure continuation experience. So porcupine trees, like see. a good, they're like a good athlete, you know, that just, whether they pick up a bat or a ball or a club or a whatever, they just, they just do it well. Yeah. I totally guess. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Second, I just mentioned the name Noel Gallagher, but I have been listening to the album, not from Noel Gallagher, but his brother, Liam Gallagher. I'm on team Liam now, as we all know, meaning I think Liam's solo career is headed in a much better direction Hmm. than Noel's in the new album. Come on, you know, I've been enjoying it a lot. I've liked all three of Liam's solo albums. He's making rock and roll and his brother is dabbling in all this electronic crap yeah. You know, like trying to show how worldly he is and all this. It's like yeah, he's Liam's doing the festival like, rock, festival rock. Completely, thing. dude. Yeah. Complete festival rock. And Liam's mm-hmm. like, forget that, man. We're rock and roll. Yeah. One thing I don't do you have the new album too? Do you have Come On, you know? I do, yeah. I think it's okay. okay. One thing I just okay. want to point out about it, the cover is amazing. Yeah, the cover's funny. Yeah. <laughs> how great is the cover, dude? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just like a bunch of like young chaps, like with beers and just like hanging out. And in the middle of it, just Liam, just like a big smile on his face. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so great. Yeah. And then you kind of mentioned, I've been getting back into CDs. The local record shop near me, they have CDs now for 50 cents each. And the guy doesn't even like price them individually. He just buys like lots or he just gets them donated to him. And he just sells them for 50 cents each, no matter what it is. 
So you can go buy, you know, 20 CDs for 10 bucks. Right. Nice. And so I've been kind of restocking that collection with a lot of early 2000s hard rock and metal, maybe new metal, some might call some of these bands. It's a lot of different bands, most of which many have never heard of. But one of those bands is Buck Cherry. And I got the 15 album on CD. It's really, really good. It's a great Buck Cherry record. You know, of course, I like the first two self-titled in Time Bomb, but 15, that's the one with Crazy Bitch and Sorry on it. It's, mm-hmm. It might be their most successful, actually. It might be their best selling. It's time period. It's an underrated time period in rock music. A lot of good hard rock metal bands came out of there. So, see, that is what is round and round for me. What is round and round for you? I'll kind of keep that metal thing going. I, dude, I'm uh, getting in. I'm going through kind of a Megadeth thing, you know, like nice. really examining the whole catalog. And so I, I'll say rest in peace. There've been a lot of them, but and you know, it's a, uh, it's a fascinating catalog. There's a lot of consistency, but also, you know, some variations, certainly some peaks and valleys in terms of quality and in terms of kind of pulling it off. But I think for the most part, it's it's pretty consistent. You know, they've put out a lot of records and they all have their own character. Dave Mustaine has certainly gone through plenty of band members, um, but there's always that rather consistent sort of voice and approach to it. And you haven't seen them go into kind of, I don't know, festival Rocky or whatever type territory. They're kind of staying true to what they are. And Rust in Peace is a fantastic album. I mean, I'm, I'm really enjoying kind of learning more about their personnel and learning more about the different eras of the band. And, you know, Dave Mustaine's a pretty important player in kind of the entire metal scene in terms of, and obviously it's fascinating history with leaving Metallica and, um, you know, the, the kind of way he started this group and what they became and what he was trying to get out of it and their live presentation. It's a very disciplined approach to things that I think is part of the reason why it's had a lot of longevity. You know, you got to see, have you seen them live since we, you know, we saw them on Counter to Extinction back in 92. Have you seen them since then? I don't think I ever saw them since then. Well, that one, no, no, we were very, I, I, I very much remember that show. It was kind of the first arena metal. I mean, we saw them before we saw Metallica, you know? So, so it was probably the first metal show that I recall. Um, but that was a very memorable one. They were playing at the palace there. Yeah. And that was the Marty Friedman, Nick Menza countdown to extinction lineup, which to me is that's my favorite. Yeah. Megadeth lineup. I saw them twice after that. Uh, I saw them on cryptic writings, which was great. It was at a festival. It's a great album. It is. The original recording is good. The re-recording where they remixed it and stripped it down. I don't like as much. I like the produced. I like produced Megadeth, you know? Yes, for sure. For sure. And then a few years back, 2016, maybe it was 17. I saw him on Dystopia. Mostly I went to see Meshuggah open. But of course I was like, sweet, I'll see Megadeth too. So I stayed in there. They were still great. You know, Dave looked and sounded great. And you know, the, he's had 14 guitarists and five drummers. And I think I'll go see him again at some point, too, because the last couple of studio albums I've really liked as well. Yeah. Nice. Uh, the second is uh, another new album from Umphreys McGee. This is Asking for a Friend. I think it's quite good. Similar skin and, and uh, you know, a couple of their uh, more recent releases, I think, have been really good. And I would put this in that category too. There's a song called the scapegoat that I think is one of their best songs. So 
And then the third is uh, Barry Manilow, who uh, I'm going to see in September in Vegas, which is very exciting because didn't mean to catch that that Barry show at the Las Vegas Hilton. And I'm not sure how much longer Barry, you know, we're going to have Barry, right? I mean, he's getting up there a little bit. So um, I know I think Barry's going to be around forever. He might. He'll outlive all of us, dude. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? he might. But uh, here comes the night, which I like his. Ah. I like his uh, '80s work. You know, I like when he got you know kind of a little bit electronic, a little bit produced, get the synthesizers going. You know, we've talked about that self-titled Manilow record, the yellow cover, this big old face on it. You know, and uh, here comes the night is kind of. I think it was earlier than that, but it's uh, you know it's got some kind of friend and got some good tunes on it. So. You know, never a bad time for some berry, especially to, especially to close off the summer, you know, in good fashion. So that's what's round and round for me, buddy. We, uh, you know, we're part one of two, like we said. And I think for part one here, we'll, you know, kind of dive into the band and the album. And, you know, we could probably spend, you know, five episodes talking about this band. Remember, T, when we, this is not the first time we've talked about Fleetwood Mac. In the Guns N' Roses, I think you use your Illusion 2 episode. Remember we played, were they in Guns N' Roses or Fleetwood Mac? Oh, yeah. That's the right. Game? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. You brought that game, uh, Guns N' Roses or Fleetwood Mac. And if I recall, I don't think I did that well. No, I think you did quite well. I want to see you get like seven of 10 or six. Oh, did of, I? It was a tough game. I mean, they both yeah. had a lot of members. You could, you could flip a coin and get seven out of 10, you know. But uh, so we'll focus kind of on the band, the history the background on the record and then nubs. I don't know what you got up your sleeve for, you know, part two, but I'm sure it'll be a, sure it'll be a good time had by all. I'm mostly planning on just talking about my love for Christine McVie, the entire, well, we're going to be doing some, (laughs) uh, McVie versus Nick's. Um, I think that's going to be a hot debate during this discussion and during these multiple discussions. Cause I didn't even know there was a debate to be had. Well, you know, okay. First of all, we've, we've talked about this before. We know that you're team McVie and I'm team next. Okay. So that's, that's, that's been the case for a long time. You have to, for the purposes of this episode, Nub, try to put aside just a semblance of your, I would say, I would call it deep love and infatuation with that woman. I mean, you're going to have to try to be a little bit objective. I'll do that. But the way I'll, I'll cope with that idea is I'll just, uh, I'll just talk mostly about my deep love and infatuation with Mick. So that's, yeah, Yeah, (laughs) no problem. Sorry. Well, there's a lot to love about this band and you know, there's plenty to go through. So why don't we kick it off doing those nerdy deeds for this one? You want some dirty deeds? Yeah. You want some dirty deeds? All right. Tusk was released on October 12th, 1979. This was, most people wouldn't guess this, the 12th studio album by Fleetwood Mac, but it was really the third with this classic lineup that, you know, obviously most people are privy to, uh, which is um, the lineup that we'll spend most of our time tonight focusing on and obviously was coming off of, you know, one of the best selling albums of all time with rumors in 1977 and no slouch before it was the self-titled record in 1975, which kind of under the radar, you know, reached number one in the U S and sold 7 million copies. 
you know, so everyone talks about rumors and they should, you know, that sold 40 million. So, you know, not, not too bad there, but um, it should be known that these guys weren't really just coming off of one smash. They were really coming off of two because their debut album, while it doesn't always get placed in the same bucket as rumors was a huge record, you know, and had some classic Fleetwood Mac tracks on it, obviously. 20 tracks, uh, a double LP. We'll cover disc one today. Nubs will take you through disc two on the next one. It was released by Warner Brothers, of course. Recorded at both the Village Recorder in LA, which is actually the building where, uh, Nub, you know the radio show, Morning Becomes Eclectic. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, that's, that's actually the building where that show is recorded as well in LA for KCRW. And at Buckingham's um, home studio, he basically <laughs> part of yeah, yeah. part of part of this whole thing was Lindsay basically saying, you know, not only do I want a lot of creative freedom, you know, basically asking Mick, the godfather of the band, uh, not only do I want a lot of creative freedom, but I also want to basically record demos and deliver them to the band, uh, basically saying this is how I want a few of these songs to be. And I want to start that at my home studio. And Mick said, fine, whatever. Yeah, but Buckingham Studios is just a way of saying Lindsay is losing his mind and he doesn't like what any of the other guys are doing. And so he literally wants to like set up a tape machine at his house and record songs on his own and play everything. That's that's exactly right here. Yeah, that's exactly. And and Lindsay was a bit mental at this time. I mean, I think the success of rumors. Yeah. A lot of coke. I mean, there was so much cocaine flowing through this band and through this process that, I mean, you know, it showed in a lot of the dynamics and drama and these type of things. But what made this band so incredible, if you really think about it, is their ability when it came down to it to deliver. And this band just straight up got in the studio and just delivered. They had a formula that was fairly original that they could have continued to establish. They wanted to create something really unique and really different and they delivered. And this band just through all the drama, through all the noise, you know, always kind of came through with the signal, not the noise, which was we can deliver content and through all the drama and all the drug use and all those type of things. I think that's what they set out to do here. Well, I, I agree with everything you just said, but I I think he might be the better uh, way to say it. I, I have a feeling that, the McVees, Stevie Nicks were more than fine with making rumors part two. I know it was Lindsay who really wanted to do something different. I mean, he wanted to create the anti rumors and to your point, T good for him. That is yep. so cool. Yep. That is so rock and roll. It's so punk because what he's really doing here is responding to punk. You mentioned it at the top. A lot of this album is timing. So Lindsay wants to create the anti-rumors. That's cool. But he kind of had Mick along with him. Mick was basically saying, yeah, you know, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's make something different. Now I don't think Mick musically was in a position to drive that along like Lindsay was, but you got to credit both of those guys. And Mick still says to this day that Tusk is his favorite Fleetwood Mac album, or at least it's in his top two. But you you are sort of hearing Lindsey Buckingham like have a nervous breakdown on record. <laughs> and that's pretty yeah. interesting, you know. It is. It, it's a um, you know, there are a couple records that, and I'm sure we'll talk about it because actually a couple of them directly influence this. But there there are a couple 
records that I certainly would, would make a direct comparison to here. The White Album, we kind of already touched on briefly, but the idea of a lot of solo contributions. I mean, John McVie himself said Tusk was basically a collection of a bunch of solo contributions, you know, from three people, right? Which were the primary composers within the band, that being, you know, Buckingham, Nixon, Christine McVie. Also, the Beach Boys smile, which which actually was Smiley Smile, the official follow-up to Pet Sounds, where they decided, you know, to just basically do anti-Pet Sounds. They were basically, you know, in utero is a little bit in the conversation on a much, you know, later sort of smaller scale. But, you know, Brian Wilson was basically saying, I don't want to do another Pet Sounds. And, and how do we kind of go about things um, to, to sort of have this be an anti-piece? And actually, Lindsey Buckingham got his hands on, I imagine Buckingham had a little bit of clout by this point, you know, within Warner Brothers and within the industry. He actually got his hands on some of the master tapes of Smile, which was never officially released as is. And actually points out that there are a couple of tracks on the album that we'll talk about where he kind of got direct influence from that. So this idea of we don't want to just, you know, replicate what we've done before and we want to go in a totally new, totally more experimental direction, uh, even though it wasn't as commercially acclaimed as a big part of its critical acclaim. Certainly the band has a very weird kind of long history. It was formed in 1967, henceforth this being their 12th studio album and formed by a guy named Peter Green that many people are familiar with. He just died, I think, last year uh, or maybe just a couple of years ago. So this was 12 years before Tusk, the band was actually formed. Now the band looked much different than um, Peter Green was a, he was a guitar guy. You know, he was a blues player. He had a track called The Supernatural, which was kind of an instrumental track that sort of put him on the map. Uh, a lot of critical acclaim, um, but it was, a, it was a pretty, you know, stripped down kind of blues thing. The, the original name of the band after John McVie got added, which actually John McVie wasn't the original, technically the original bass player. They had another bass player for like the first six months, although Peter Green wanted John McVie. So, you know, he kind of, but he was doing another project or something. So uh, eventually McVie joined this new band, um, hence the Fleetwood Mac, Mac V and McFleetwood. But it was originally called Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac featuring Jeremy Spencer. <laughs> so it's like, how do we get everybody's name in here? Uh, I'm really, really surprised that name never caught. Don't you think Nubs? That's awfully big, big to fit on a T-shirt. You know, it's it's so catchy. You know? <laughs> right? Talk about yeah. a bunch of egomaniacs. It's like, yeah, oh, I need my name in there. That's I need right. my name in there. You know, totally, totally, man. So, so anyway, obviously that eventually got stripped down to Fleetwood Mac. Now Peter Green is. It's almost like a Sid Barrett story. He kind of went a little nuts. Um, he took a lot of LSD, which similar to Sid Barrett, probably too much. And he kind of like grew this long beard and started to kind of like lose his mind a little bit, like literally. Um, and he started really getting on this kick of not wanting the band to make money. And the irony there is amazing considering what the band would become commercially. And as far as stadium, you know, presence and all these type of things, I mean, it was a, a jet. They're one of the first bands I remember that had its own plane, you know I mean? They, so so the fact that at its roots, you had this guy who was, was really the founder of the band that was, he was actually giving Mick Fleetwood a hard time at one point saying, we, we don't want to make money. That's not the point of this. And Mick was like, I don't mind making a few bucks, you know, like, what do you, come on, man, like, go ahead if you don't want to, but I'm, I'm good with it, you know? 
so you know but they kicked out some hits i mean black magic woman you know in 1968 was was a hit obviously it was eventually a bigger hit for um santana a few years later by the way did did santana like ever like write their own song like did, did they ever like have a hit that like he like carlos santana like actually like wrote because i don't i don't think so no, not really. No, he's not really a songwriter. <laughs> yeah. Kind of wasn't his thing, was it? You know, I mean, I respect him. You know, it's like, you know, he's got longevity. He's continually made himself relevant in a number of different ways. I mean, you got to respect the guy, but, and he tries hard, but not exactly a composer, right? He, he Honestly, he's probably the one of the most overrated musicians in history. He really is. If you look yeah. at his catalog and like all the people he relied on to have hits and he himself, like pretty good guitarist, but not like, you know, not in the top 10 of all time by any means. Yeah. Super overrated. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Peter green, you know, eventually he, he would become diagnosed with schizophrenia again, much like Sid Barrett. He actually received electroshock treatment, uh, therapy. He kind of bounced back. He got his life together a little sort of bounced around musically and then just died a couple of years ago. So Peter Green's the true founder of the band, but Mick Fleetwood really at that point, you know, sort of took over because this had been like kind of a disaster. I mean, so many band members coming and going. And, you know, I think Mick always kind of saw the the bigger vision, but really wasn't able to just sort of get it under control and really started to take over leadership and, and actually management of the band. They were self-managed um, once this sort of classic lineup came into play. But regardless, you're talking about a lot of cocaine, a lot of uh, intra-band drama, and a lot of intra-band uh, sexual relations, shall we say? I mean, you you almost need like a complex diagram to figure out like who was banging who at, at what time period, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's true. Well, and we'll get into that. Obviously there's a couple songs on Tusk that directly, you know, relate to the interband banging that was going yeah, on. You know, rumors <laughs> was full of that. I mean, the yes. whole tension of rumors is all about them writing songs about each other. It was, it was a big part of these guys. They, they would basically, write these like really um, passionate sort of like at times angry songs about one another. And, you know, they just sing them, you know, it's like, you're like oh, singing yeah. about the guy, like six feet from me and how much like he pissed you off and how much you kind of hate him. You know I mean? It's- well, like silver Springs is like this scathing thing that Stevie Nicks wrote about Lindsay Buckingham right after they broke up and she was sitting there singing it at him live. And then when they did the dance, remember they really played it up and they're, you know, they were, doing the kind of stare at each other while they were singing thing. But oh, some we'll, of that was very real. Listen, you know? we'll talk about Silver Springs. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. we'll it's there. not on Tusk, but, but yeah, it's, I tell you what though, it connects to Tusk, doesn't it? It does. Well, yeah, it does. And we'll, we'll get to it, but uh, Buckingham and Nick's joined the band in 1974. So, I mean, why don't we talk about the band members? Uh, let's take them in, in the order in which they joined. Okay. I think that's the best way to go about it. We'll go chronological on this one. Autobiographical? Chronological? <laughs> no. Autobiographical. No way. <laughs> hey, can I guess real quick? I think I know this. Sure. Okay. So it would be Mick first. Yeah. John McVie second, mm-hmm. then Christine McVie, mm-hmm. 
They were not a package deal, though they they did get married, obviously. And then technically, and again, this is there's this is significant. Lindsay and then Stevie, because Lindsay mm-hmm. got in and Lindsay said, you can only have me yeah. if you let my girlfriend come with me. Yeah, it was kind of a it was basically same time. Yeah. Yeah. Back, well, back but Mick was like, okay, fine. You can bring the girl. Yeah. Mick, but they wanted pursued. Lindsay. They did not yeah. want Stevie Nicks. That's right. That's right. But you know, but Lindsay said, you know, you want me to take her too. And exactly. You know, thank God. Thank God he did. Um, because she's, <laughs> she's the queen of rock and roll, right? So, Stop it. There you go. Stop it. Uh, okay. Mick Fleetwood. So, so he was really, I, I, technically he's the only true founder of the band. I mean, John joined it after, like I said, a few months, but so, so really, you know, Mick and John are kind of the, the founders, if you will. But uh, in terms of presence, in terms of uh, activity, in terms of, um, like I said, managing the band and sort of really being the the band leader, it's, it's always been, you know, Mick Fleetwood, it really still is to this day. So, you know, tons of drama, tons of member departures, even before, the classic lineup, even before bringing it in Lindsay and Stevie, there, there were people in and out of this band um, for various reasons throughout many, many years, including Peter Green, the guy who formed it. The last guy he kicked out was a guy named Bob Weston. You you do you know why Bob Weston got kicked out now? No, I don't. Oh, he banged Mick's wife. So Oh, well, there yeah. you go. Yeah, banged, okay. banged Mick's wife. So I think that's, I think that's, you know, Grounds, a, yeah, I think that's grounds. grounds for getting ejected from the band, don't you? Know what I mean, <laughs> yeah. they're a bunch of really horny people, I yeah. This was a, I guess Jesus this was Christ. the 70s, I guess this is the way it worked, I don't yeah, know. yeah, 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 Pretty crazy. But <laughs> so he took over, uh, as manager of the band in 1975. I think at that point, he kind of decided this is this is my baby, this is going to be my vision, and I'm gonna, you know, we're gonna have people obviously come in because he wasn't a songwriter or anything, so it's not like he could be the band but he certainly wanted to you know i think kind of lead the band and and, and lead the vision uh, there's a funny bit in uh we've talked about hell's bells the dangers of rock music on the podcast here and there's a funny bit with mick fleetwood where they're talking about like being summoned by like evil spirits and and they show mick fleetwood during one of his like legendary drum solos you know he's playing this like tribal kind of beat and like they get this like weird camera angle of him where he like looks like he's possessed, you know, and they're like, take Fleetwood Mac, where during Mick Fleetwood's long drum solos, you can sense the presence of Satan himself. You know? <laughs> I don't know if you remember that one, but it's funny. His like eyes are rolling in the back of his head. It's super weird. And like what's funny is Mick would make that same face when he was like playing go your own way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. That was just like a like his playing face. Yeah. yeah. But do you have any, um, he was a self-taught drummer, which you can kind of tell. Uh, I think that, you know, you can sort of spot that from a mile away, but do you have any, any thoughts on him from just a drummer standpoint? I love Mick Fleetwood's drumming. Okay. I always have. If you listen to the dance top to bottom, it is a great performance by him. Some of the edge and like the tone that he brings to some of those live performances in 1997 of those songs really really strong i mean he he has a lot to do with this band's sound he's clever plays you know really square on the drums he has great tone and i really like his kind of rhythmic sensibilities he gets time well he doubles time well he does it at the right time i mean he's just 
he's a true musician. Got you know? some nice groove, some nice kind of loose groove to it. Yeah. I mean, we'll, yeah. we'll talk about a few of the songs on Tusk, but if you, you know, if, go back to rumors and listen to, I'll, I'll bring this up more than once, but go your own way. You know, he, he puts in a terrific performance on that. Yeah. The chain he's really strong on. He gets a little boring and sounds like dreams and, but the Rhiannon part is very How clever. You? How yeah. dare you oh, say something dreams. like that about dreams. I, I hate dreams so much. You know what? I do. It's like, so boring. I don't know if I can do this. I, I don't know if this, I don't know if I can take this, like knocking my girl, Stevie. I, I don't know, man, this is going to be tough. Our listeners need to know we, we have had this conversation separate of microphones and recording so many times it gets very personal with you too I mean, well i love christine mcvee i'm not no you, you know, don't but don't know of course don't. i do but no, stop but, it but no you like, don't but it's not you I mean, don't love not, her not a contest you don't love her yes i do i do i have her solo album i think she, i love oh, mcvee yeah she's great but stevie nicks is stevie nicks anyway we'll we'll get to it um i love mick fleetwood's drumming i love it Right, Listen to the dance, top to bottom. He's got great feel, good yeah. power. He sounds great. I wouldn't have guessed that. Okay. John McVie joined. Uh, so he joined in late 1967 with the original Peter Green lineup. He, he was the guy Peter Green wanted. He's a blues guy, you know, and, and I think they had that in common. Uh, he's obviously the Mac of Fleetwood Mac. You know, he, he's kind of a workhorse. I, I don't know. You know, he didn't really compose ever. So, you know, and, and he was Christine's husband. So, you know, I think that was his biggest contribution really bringing her into the band i don't know <laughs> there's a few things we'll talk about it not on this episode but on the uh on the title track i mean there's okay. there's a bass moment on the title track that's pretty uh pretty sweet i would say okay all right um i don't know if you you know this but um do you know christine mcvee's uh, maiden name yes i do it um it's christine oh it's this it's a super only uh it's you like you a, you would name her this even if it wasn't her name. Yeah, it's, it's perfect. Um, perfect. Yes, Christine, Christine perfect. perfect. That's yeah. right. Yes. So Christine Perfect, which again you would have called her that anyway. Yeah, I was going to say Christine joined, Beautiful, but that's exactly Christine Genius. Yeah, uh, joined in uh, 1971. Obviously, was married to John. That dissolved uh, during kind of the uh, peak period of. Fleetwood Mac, right around the time of rumors, I believe uh, they were married for eight years and it's kind of ugly after that, but they've since kind of worked it out. They've got a fine professional relationship. And I think they were able to kind of get it together before too long through their time through the eighties and beyond. So and Christine's the um, only one that didn't bang another member of the band, right? She banged Dennis Wilson of the Beach Correct. Boys, yeah, yeah. She, but, yeah, not, that's um, right. but not but yeah. anybody else at Fleetwood Mac. I mean, I'm sure she did, but maybe not regularly or noteworthy. Right. Yeah. I, it was yeah. like Stevie who like really I'm got, sure she got that, around in the band. I'm sure know. she had too much Coke one night and jumped on Mick. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know I was, I'm sure they yeah. all ju- I'm sure they all jumped on each other at one point. You know? How could you not jump on Mick? I think John and Lindsay probably did each other. Yeah, point, I was, you know? I was no doubt. No yeah, doubt. I mean, geez, yeah. why not? You know? <laughs> Uh, but yeah, she, so she, yeah, she was actually engaged to Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys at one point. And it's funny, she, you know, she has this uh, famous song, not from Tusk, called uh, You Make Love and Fun. <laughs> she wrote that about the guy she was having an affair with during the rumors recording while she was married. 
So she's like married to John and like, right. Like blatantly writes this song about this guy. She's about her side piece, you know? <laughs> exactly. And it's like, not like, it's not like mysterious or so. it's like, she's clearly, you know, talking about somebody that she's like having a thing with. I mean, I don't know. It's funny. It's hilarious. It's, it's a hilarious. funny band. So, I mean, Christine McVie, obviously a tremendous con- contributor to this group and, you know, penned some of their unquestionably, some of their best songs and, and most timeless songs and, uh, and a couple of good ones on this record for sure. Lindsey Buckingham joined the band in um, 1975 with Stevie. Um, they were a couple and that of course dissolved as well. Kind of at the same time that John and Christine dissolved. Uh, they recorded a record in 1973 called Buckingham Knicks, which I don't think has ever been like released, right? Like, like released on CD and stuff. Like, I mean, it was obviously released on LP and it was kind yeah, of, I, think, I want to say like Polydor had it or Polygram. One, one of the, yeah, it was a major label release. I think it's gotten CD reissues, but from what, what I understand, they don't really like it. It's, I don't think it's work that they're in hindsight that proud of. I think they well, were at the time. Well, you know who did like it is Mick Fleetwood. He he heard yep. it and was kind of blown away and said, I want this dude in particular, but shit, I'll take them both if we can get them uh, in, in my band. Um, Lindsay's an incredible guitar player. You know, I mean, a very unique, he's got a sort of finger picking style. He almost plays like a banjo, but um, it has a unique guitar that I think he designed kind of for that purpose. He's a, he's an excellent player. He, he does some, he does an acoustic version of uh big love, just him in the acoustic guitar and what he's doing on the guitar with, with his finger picking while he's singing is extraordinary. It's, it's inhuman. Extraordinary. I, I don't even yeah. know how he does it. I don't know and when he solos, like he rips <laughs> again, that solo, he rips to end go your own way. Oh yeah. Especially live. Like, I don't even know how he's doing that without yeah. a pick. Yeah, it's, you know, it's there's and there's really, one on the record that we'll get to t- today that like it's, it's like how are you doing this? You yeah, know? it's awesome. I mean his his playing is really unique and and really pretty extraordinary. I mean he's on that big love piece. He's he's playing a solo while still playing the the bass like notes like rhythm. I mean just stuff that's just crazy. I mean it's just stuff that's insane. You know he's I love watching him play guitar. He was fired in 2018 and has yet to play with the band again. Uh, he was replaced by Neil Finn, the guy from Crowded House. And I don't know, there was a whole thing. Stevie got pissed at him and he got butt hurt about some award show. I don't know. It's like a stupid, the whole story's dumb. I mean, there, you know, there's, there's an element of these guys that even, you know, when they're all 60 years old, they're still acting like they're 25 again. You know? Oh, and dude, they're all pains in the asses in their yeah. own way. Yeah. yeah. You know, because Christine left the band for a while too. She, I mean, she had her issues from a psychological perspective and then she came back and then Lindsay leaves and Neil Finn. Comes. I mean, it's just, it's hilarious. You know, it's like these guys are just such a soap opera and they yeah. sort of know it, you know, they do, but I feel like they, they can't like, do anything about it. like you know they, they just it's almost like when you're with siblings where you know you get together and it's it's like your kids again in terms of your dynamics and the way you interact with each other and all that it's like same thing with those guys they they resort back to being in their mid-20s and being just crazy you know <laughs> so totally. 
It's hilarious. And of course he brought with him Stevie Nicks. The, the, I mean, she's the, the queen of rock. I don't, do I need to say anything else? I don't know. Is there anything you want to say about her? Or you want to maybe admit that you sort of underestimate her or anything while we have the chance or maybe one of the princesses, maybe a princess. All right. Maybe. That's fair. That's okay. fair. Uh, I think she has the, uh, the best uh, female voice in uh, rock history, you know, <laughs> and uh, sexiest, sexiest voice. Now that you might make a case for it. in in human history, you know, very distinct, very unique. I don't think anyone will ever sing like her. And I don't think anyone will ever rock a scarf like her either. You know, you can make an argument for that too. All right. Well, you know, we're getting somewhere. We're getting somewhere. <laughs> yeah. By the end of this, I'll have you on team Knicks, right? Not a chance. Probably not. Yeah. So the album, I mean, listen, this is, this is going to be an interesting one to talk about. Uh, Entertainment Weekly put it nicely. They called it a fascinating mess, but full of enough good songs, which I don't know. I get that. It's very experimental. You know, we talked earlier about the White Album, a lot of tracks. Uh, Lindsey Buckingham, to your earlier point, Nub, really drove the ship. You know, he was the one that basically said, I want to have a lot of creative freedom here. I want to be able to you know, kind of take a lot of different directions. And I don't want people to listen to this and hear that it's uh, us trying to do rumors again. The one band member that hated the direction was John McVie. And, you know, he's a blues guy. He's a, he's kind of a pretty straightforward, probably liked a lot of the more poppy stuff that they were doing on the self-titled and on rumors. Cause of a lot, a lot of it was very bass driven. Um, very important instrument within the band. I mean, I don't mean to discount John McVie at all as far as his presence within the band, but you know, I, I think that when they started to go a little bit more experimental, he probably was like, what the hell are we doing guys? You know, the stuff we're doing is selling out, you know, stadiums. So, well, well, you know, what's the problem? But, uh, on the contrary, Mick Fleetwood says Tusk is his favorite record. He's basically said that all along, you know, he thinks it's the best record they ever produced and the most interesting and you know, even today still says, thank goodness we didn't listen to Warner Brothers and sort of go out there with rumors part two. Now, with that said, it was a commercial disappointment. You know, it, it sold a measly like four million when it came out and instead of the 10 that it sold at the beginning of, of rumors, you know, um, so commercial disappointment, but obviously critically very well liked now. And even at the time, I mean, Rolling Stone gave it four and a half. So, you know, there was definitely, and not that they're always right, but there was definitely a feeling that um, if you kind of pull back the expectations of them just putting out another kind of commercial classic like Rumors, a lot of people really kind of took notice that these guys are doing something really interesting. And I think that's what will be fun about, you know, going through Tusk. Mick, Mick thought it sold like crap. This is kind of funny because RKO Radio played the album in full prior to its release. And, and this was at a time where people were just starting to figure out how to tape at home from the radio. You could do sort of this, you know, home taping thing. So due to this sort of mass taping, um, Mick Fleet would sort of blame that. And the fact that it was a double album, it was $16 at the time for the double LP, which actually a pretty decent chunk of change uh, in 1979 for a record album. I mean, that's what we were paying for CDs in 2000. So Hey Mick, nobody had enough cassette tape at the time to tape the whole thing. Okay. So yeah, that's very debunked. That's probably true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, I think it's the fact that they uh, released something that nobody was expecting in terms of the sound or the direction, you know? Well, but it's also, was... I mean, you run out of superlatives to describe rumors. I mean, 
that was a that was a generational album in terms of its yeah. sales. You yeah. know, it's it, you're not going to do that again. And very smart. I'm Lindsey Buckingham, very smart. Yep. Very ahead of your time to say, look, we're not going to do that again. Let's do something different. Let's do something really, really authentic and way, way, way out of the box. Yeah. And props to him and props to Mick Fleetwood. It was the most expensive album to date to record. So, you know, almost like a Heaven's Gate type thing. It costed a million bucks to record, which in 1977 is a lot of money. You know, that that was for to, to record a a rock and roll record, you know, that was, uh, that was, and it took 10 months. So, you know, they, there was obviously a lot of expectations here and a lot of investment, you know, put into this. All right, buddy, let's get to the wonder stories on these guys. No, but I think everybody has a, um, had some sort of, moment with these guys even people that weren't like huge fans or super into it or dug deep into them probably has a time you know especially when you grew up when we did where you either discovered them or i'm sure we'll talk about the dance which you mentioned earlier already but uh what's your fleetwood mac story there buckaroo honestly t the most interesting thing of of kind of my fleetwood mac story is it really isn't Fleetwood Mac. It's Lindsey Buckingham solo. We've made lots of references to our mom who raised us right musically and exposed us to a lot of good stuff. And one of those things was this song, Go Insane. I remember that she would listen to it, jump on her trampoline to it or whatever. <laughs> and uh, this was mid eighties and it was by Lindsey Buckingham. Yeah. And I didn't know anything about Fleetwood Mac, nothing, but I knew Go Insane by Lindsey Buckingham because our mom would play that all the time around yeah. the house. You're actually right. Very, we, we knew Lindsey Buckingham before we knew. Fleetwood way before. Yeah. And it was this very kind of upbeat. I mean, as a kid, it was a very memorable song. It was just kind of quirky and unique. It's a great tune. It is. It's a very, very good song. And the album it comes off is, is quite good. Yeah. And so I remember just being surprised when I then later learned about Fleetwood Mac saying, oh, Lindsey Buckingham is in that. You mean the guy who does go insane? So, you know, I kind of went in reverse. Like most people would probably lead to Lindsey Buckingham's solo career via Fleetwood Mac. Mine was kind of the opposite. And I think it was your typical kind of radio deal, you know, growing up and listening to classic rock radio and hearing certain songs. I remember the chain having an impact on me early. I remember hearing that, yeah. just the atmosphere of that song. I think that was more impactful for me than any other Fleetwood Mac songs. But you got to remember, well, there was modern Fleetwood Mac when we were kids. It, everywhere was a radio hit that was, you know, that, that wasn't a nostalgia piece when we first heard it. That was like a relevant mid to late eighties hit, you know, then they, they and they, big love and, and little yeah. lies and, and little seven, lies. Seven oh yeah. Wonders. And yeah, sure. yeah. Little lies is another great example. And so, but, but the band broke up and wasn't active. So, you know, eventually kind of heard rumors and I remember seeing the cover art for the first time, just being very confused. It was like, it's like, there's this tall guy and, and her and they're in the band, but and these people on the background, the band, and it's just the whole thing was kind of, I got this big old Mick and then Stevie's next to him and they're kind of like close. And then on the hmm. back, you got this guy in like a fro, Lindsay. And it was just like, okay, it's kind of weird. You know, hmm. they reunited, they did the dance. It was huge. I mean, it was such a big deal. And then we went and saw him at that tour at the Palace of Auburn Hills. Great show. 
and uh, Fleetwood Mac kind of became really relevant again. I think what did the whole thing though, T was when Bill Clinton campaigned in 1992, don't stop was his theme song. He played it at every yep. single stop on his campaign and it made that song and it made Fleetwood Mac really popular. I think that was sort of an impetus to the dance. Oh yeah. And I remember hearing that and being like, okay, I know this song that's Fleetwood Mac. That's Lindsey Buckingham. Just trying to piece the whole thing together. And then eventually saying, Oh, that's Stevie Nicks too. Cause I knew Stevie Nicks from, Stand back, you know what I mean? I, yeah, much more than anything with Fleetwood Mac. She was like at MTV, uh, you know, Edge of 17, and yeah, her, her solo stuff was probably another thing that we kind of felt before even kind of putting the whole Fleetwood Mac thing together, yeah, totally. You had to piece the whole thing together and figure and out. And she did that duet with uh, Don Henley as well, right? Leather and Lace, and then, right. um. What was the one with Kenny Loggins? Oh, uh, whenever I call you friend with Kenny Loggins. Mm-hmm. So yeah, she yeah she was active. Yeah, she was. And so you know, so by the the late nineties, they're they're very popular and they're touring the dance and things are going very well. And then funny to watch the whole thing kind of disassemble again over time. Um, we actually I don't know if you recall this, T, but we saw Fleetwood Mac once before we saw him on the dance. They toured with Ario Speedwagon and Sticks. I want to say it was one of those deals where we went and saw those bands because we used to go see Ario Speedwagon every summer. Fleetwood Mac opened, but it was not with Stevie Nicks. It was on the Time album. And it was Mick and John and Christine and then a bunch of other people. Oh, no Lindsay and no Stevie. No Lindsay, no Stevie. Oh. And okay. so it was it was called Fleetwood Mac because John and and Mick were in it, but it was a totally different lineup. Because what happened with the dance, that was the return of Stevie and the return of Lindsay. Oh, but okay. Fleetwood Mac had remained active. They put out a couple of records with that kind of off lineup. And I remember they opened with the chain and they closed with going away, but it was like, oh, this isn't totally Fleetwood Mac because it's not with the other guys. Yeah, I think I remember that now. Yeah. Yeah. It was, was like we also saw like ELO part two, you know? Right. Which was like yeah. yes. ELO without Jeff Lynn. It's like, well, that's it's not ELO. Like Correct. I think they too <laughs> he was, with Ario he, was ra- he was yeah. rather important to that band last time <laughs> right. I checked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was like the drummer Bev Bevan, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, the, okay. the bassist. Yeah. Right. <laughs> But uh, so, so yeah, it was an interesting kind of discovery, but uh, I never really got into the early blues stuff. I tried, I tried yeah. to, you know, future games is this herald heralded album. And right. I tried it. It's just not my thing. I'm not, yeah. I hate blues music, so I'm not, I'm not really going to like them. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, with you. so that's kind of, it. it's a little all over the place, but uh, you know, obviously a fascinating band for sure. And, and, a, and a very, very interesting album. So T what's your wonder story? What do you got? The the Bill Clinton thing was a, a big deal and, and it was a catalyst for the, the band. In fact, I think that the first time the five of them played together in many, many years was, I think, at the inauguration party because he had been using Don't Stop on the campaign. And then, you know, a couple of years later, you know, it was the dance and all that stuff. So in terms of where we were, I mean, that was when did Clinton get inaugurated? Like 93. So we were 13. I mean, we were kind of still learning about some of these groups from this era. And that was probably the way that we kind of put everything together. It was like, okay, that's Lindsey Buckingham. That's Stevie Nicks. That's, you know, they did this song. They also did this song. And then you start to learn about, I remember like I heard the Smashing Pumpkins cover of Landslide before I even realized, I thought it was a Smashing Pumpkins song. You know, it's <laughs> like, well, that's a pretty good tune. Oh, Never mind, it's not theirs. You know, so so there there was um a lot to learn 
about the band and, and really the green greatest hits compact disc was the way to do it. You know, I mean, that was a really good collection. It reminds me, I, we had that, uh, I think we've talked about the trip to Washington DC. We took when we were juniors in high school. Yeah. Yeah. You're just like in a bus with like girls and it's like nighttime and you know, it's it cool. It's like, you're hanging out and listening to me. It was what we did. We all had Walkman. We listened to music, you know? And I remember, uh, couple of gal pals being super into Fleetwood Mac. And that was the first time I actually really listened to all of that green album and that greatest hits album. And I was like, Oh man, these, these guys are really good. And kind of goes from there. And then shortly thereafter was the dance. Um, Cause you started to hear about, you know, they're getting back together and they're going to do this performance. And the dance was a really big deal at the time. You know, that, that this was a, I think it was VH1 put it on if I'm not mistaken. Right. It wasn't an MTV thing. I think. And, uh, and, you know, they made the, the, the record out of it, which everybody had. I mean, this was one of those generational, I mean, young people had it, older people had it, everyone in between. It was a really special sort of capturing of the band at this time when they were sounding really good. And, and they brought back an old song called Silver Springs. We kind of breathed on it earlier. I think it's the greatest B-side ever created. It was supposed to be on the Rumors album didn't make it on the rumors album. Stevie Nicks was a lot of people think that this was where the band really started to like literally fall apart. Oh, she was pissed. She was very pissed. And you know what? She should have been. I mean, there was room on the record for it. It's an incredible song. The version on the dance is, is just really special. That, that song really kind of helped pull me in uh, to the dance uh, and then you start to realize, wow, you know, Lindsay's this amazing guitar player and this, you know, this band has all this tension and all this history. And, you know, it was pretty cool. It's pretty cool once you dig into it. So why don't we uh, why don't we kill it there in terms of uh, kind of the band? I'm sure you'll get into some stuff in uh, part two. So uh, I don't know, man, what do you say we dig into disc one and get this thing going? I think we should do that, man. Let's get into Tusk. All right. Well, you know, this, this album is a, it's a ride, you know, and you kind of realize right away that this is not going to be one of those, you know, uh, track one is the, is the hit and track two is the bigger hit and track three is the ballad. And, you know, it's, it's sort of throughout all the sort of conventional approaches that, that records at this time had. And, and, and frankly, it's predecessor had with rumors and you get a sense for that in terms of this sort of easing into it, uh, start that you get with track one, which is over and over. Nubs' girlfriend gets us off to a start here. This is a McVie track. And it's very smooth and, and easy for an album opener. And it kind of, again, I think it signals that, you know, just sit down for a while because this is going to be a bit of a ride here for these next 20 tracks. And we're not going to hit you over the head too hard right away with something. We're going to ease you into it. So, Nubs, are you tearing up over there? Are you hearing the sound <laughs> of McVie's voice? Or? 
boy, she does have the best voice in Fleetwood Mac, doesn't she? There's no question about it. <sighs> you know, I thought I had you there. I thought thought we were getting somewhere, you know? Can you imagine, dude, a like 16-year-old girl who loved rumors, listened to it to death, runs to her local record shop, buys this new Fleetwood Mac album, takes it home and puts it on, and this is what she hears in 1979. Can you imagine? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big reason for the commercial, you know, sort of letdown. But if you had people, and I'm sure there were plenty that really understood the band, and at this point, they were almost in like crap gold territory. So oh, I'm, yeah. sure, you know, yeah. I'm sure there are plenty As we'll that, see. I mean, yeah, yeah. They were um, stumbling upon amazing songs, as we'll see through these two <laughs> albums. I, I love over and over. I, what I really, what I really love is the last minute and a half. This outro is so strong. I mean, you yeah. get that piano sound, that keyboard sound. You just kind of weave through McVie's just, you know, gorgeous vocals. But that outro is like, okay, now, now I kind of see what Tusk is set up to do here. I think it's kind of neat. I mean, Lindsay clearly had a lot of control over this record creatively, but I think it's kind of cool that he gave the opening track to Christine. I mean, it's almost like a tax man, you know, given the the opening track of revolver to Harrison, you know, it's, there's an element there that these guys would remind you that while this thing was pretty Tusk was pretty siloed in that it was a lot of solo contributions, kind of like the white album that they were still a team. You know, they were still a unit and I, and I think they still were at this time, even as screwed up and conflicted and complex as things were, you know, musically, these guys remained a pretty, pretty tight knit unit. This was solely recorded by Lindsey Buckingham. I'm, I'm not even sure if anyone else in the band played on this. And this is track two, The Ledge. Now, Again. this is probably the moment, <laughs> right? If they, if they weren't saying that, you know, to your point on over and over now track two, which, which on rumors was, uh, let's see, it was secondhand nudes, then dreams, I believe. Right. Yes. I mean, smash it and then go your own way. I think it was three. So now it's like, all right, this definitely ain't rumors. You know? <laughs> yeah, we're, right. We're not in Kansas anymore. Like what, what's going on here. Right. And, and you got to remember T. Lindsey Buckingham at this stage, first of all, he's on a ton of coke, but he yeah. is, he's infatuated with punk. Yeah. Not just the music, but the, the attitude. He cuts his hair. He, he cut his hair real short. He, he started doing the punk thing, right? And you hear that here. This is Lindsey Buckingham's version of a punk rock song. And he wanted it to sound bad. I, I listened to a ton of interviews, you know, Ken Kelly, who was one of the producers of Tusk and rumors. He loves talking about Tusk, even though he doesn't really love the album. He said, Lindsay wanted it to sound bad. That's one of the reasons mm-hmm. why he did a lot of this stuff at home. Mm-hmm. He didn't want all that FM AM radio polish on it. Yep. It's a great example. I mean, it's a terrible sounding song. Forget about the, the kind of rustic composition. Yeah. But he's want, he wants to make punk music. And this yeah. is what Lindsay Buckingham doing punk sounds like. It's a great point. And, and that's where I, I kind of, touched on you know the comparison to in utero earlier a lot of comparisons there it's like 
this is, you know, we do not want this to sound polished and uh, the ledge ain't polished. That's for sure. But <laughs> for sure. But this next one kind of is, this is another McVee track. Really, really great song from these guys. Think about me. Track three. When I really started to uh, get into Fleetwood Mac, um, actually before I even got into their albums, I, I listened to that Green Greatest Hits, and then then there was this two disc Best of with the white cover, and that was like my step two. And Think About Me was on there because it wasn't a huge hit, but it was it was um, besides the title track, I think it was the biggest hit off Tusk, but it wasn't you know a song that you know you heard on the radio a lot or that sort of thing. But I remember listening to that on this two disc. So I'd been listening to Fleetwood Mac for a couple of years before I'd heard this song. And it became one of my favorite songs by them. You know, I was like, wow, it's, it's really good. And it's got that McVie sort of groove to it. A little bit like you heard on You Make Love and Fun. Um, but I think with even more depth, great lyric, uh, vocal contribution from Lindsay there. Really, really well done song. I think a great track three here on Tusk. Love Think About Me. You, you just nailed it. And of course, it has the, the best vocalist in Fleetwood Mac lead singing. But to your point, T, this is a band song. You can you can distinctly yeah. hear Lindsay's vocal and the harmonies that are going on. They sound like a really cohesive unit on this song. Yeah. And it has that FM polish. You know, there's two songs on this side that sound like outtakes from rumors. This is one of them. Mm -hmm. And it's because everything's jiving. They're moving in the same direction. They're all singing together. It's a terrific song. It's very, very well done. Tusk had to at least have a few things on it that could be commercially successful, you know? Yeah, they, did, they didn't play it live for about 25 years. And then in 2015, um, they decided to pop it into the set list. And uh, for the first time they played it, uh, Christine prefaced it by saying, this song, I can't do a British accent, but the song was released as a single, although I don't think it did too terribly well, but we like it. And then they played Think About Me. Well, <laughs> Adorable. We like, Adorable. We, <laughs> we, we like it too, Christine. All right, let's get to another Lindsay solo track here with track four, Save Me a Place. This is just, this is like so white album to me. I mean, it's like, you <laughs> yeah. know, how do we kind of like take, and he sort of did it earlier with the punky thing. He does that even, even further, you know, here in a little bit later in the side, but you know, let's take this sort of like almost country twangy sounding piece and kind of make this sound like, you know, a bunch of guys in their barn just jamming, you know, and that's kind of what Save Me a Place represents here. You get a, a real idea. I mean, this is the guy who brought Go Your Own Way to the table. And his first two tracks on this side are The Ledge and Save Me a Place, which are about as stripped down as it gets. 
Certainly Lindsay's making a statement here very early. Well, you know, wait till you get to the other side of, of this disc. I mean, it, it's, it's a Duffaroo. It, you know, it's sort of a country rock deal. I'm sure somebody out there would say, man, this is the beginning of all alt country, man. You know, and I don't know if I'd go that far above all. I just, I don't think it's that strong of a composition. Most of the Lindsay stuff sounds, I compare a lot of it to, to, um, to Bowie's low album. You know, these snippets, these unfinished things with these sort of endings that come out of nowhere and yeah. no normal song structure by any means. I think that Lindsay was dabbling in that experimentalism. You know, yeah. now, now Bowie did it at a different time and he had Brian Eno and like, that's why Low is so legendary. I think Tusk fails a little bit because people expected at least songcraft, and you're not getting that in these Lindsay songs. They all sound unfinished. Nope. They sound under-rehearsed, and that's exactly what he wanted. Indeed. Well, this one was rehearsed. This one was finished. Stevie, step on up, baby. Track five, Sarah. Oh, Stevie. <laughs> oh, Stevie. You're not going to like what I have to say about this. Just, just, just so yummy. <laughs> Six minutes, 22. It's the longest song on the record but by far, actually. I think there are a couple that are in the five handle, but this is at six minutes, 22. The later versions that were released on the compilations and, and for the radio were much shorter. I think they were three and a half or something. So this was... Stripped down for radio, but it was a long song. Uh, Sarah was a not only a friend of Stevie Nicks, but a friend of Stevie Nicks who married Mick Fleetwood. So it's the, it, that's the chick who Mick Fleetwood left Stevie Nicks for. Sarah. Yeah, basically. Yeah, basically. Yeah, he he yeah. had an affair with Sarah while he was basically dating Stevie. So I mean, Sarah must have been amazing. Good lord, what an idiot! <laughs> must have been. It must have been one hell of a woman, right? Uh, so yeah. And then, and then Mick married her. They were married for 13 years, which, which for him is a pretty long time uh, with his track record. Those that's like an eternity, you know, it, Don Henley was also banging Stevie Nicks at one point. They had a, they had a child while well, he got her pregnant. They had an unborn child terminated the uh, pregnancy. Right. And, uh, Don Henley says that Sarah was about that was Stevie Nicks singing to you know, she and Don Headley's unborn child. So, I mean, good Lord, you know, it's like typical Fleetwood Mac. It's like, yeah, okay, whatever, yeah, dude, never afraid to make it about him. I mean, I listen, this is one of those Stevie songs that uh, it's a little long, um, but uh, I don't know. She could sing anything as far as I'm concerned. And, and it does have that signature kind of groove. I mean, I, I think mixed drum progression here is really neat. And it's all pretty minimalist. You know, there's elements, there's keyboards, all that stuff, but it's, but it's stripped down and, you know, almost like reminds you of dreams in, in some way. But I actually think this song might be kind of better than dreams. Hmm. But um, okay, go I, ahead. Tell us think, why you don't, tell us why you don't like Sarah. Well, I, I think it's the most overrated song in Fleetwood Mac's commercial catalog far and away. It, it, hmm. it really doesn't go anywhere. The first minute and 20 seconds are really cool. 
I love the intro. And then when Mick does come in with that brush drum part, it, it it's like, oh, this is going to be a really good song. And then it ends up not being a really good song. It just is directionless. And it just keeps going and going and going. Now, the single version, I think, you know, fixed some of this, but we're not talking about the single version. We're talking about the album. And dude, this is a prog guy saying that this song like never ends. And the reason why it feels like it never ends is because it, it just repeats over and over and over again. And it doesn't build enough yeah. to do that. You know, I, I don't blame you for that take. I mean, I, I get where you're coming from. Um, and Stevie sings her ass off, dude. It's Trust me. And it's just Stevie. I know. You know? See, our biases are coming through here. I know. There's no question. I know. I knew it was going to happen. You know? Yeah. But if you're truly unbiased, I just, I think it's a very overrated song. I'm not. So, I'm not. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. It just um, never, no, it I, never ends. It never goes anywhere. Joking aside, I, I, I don't, I don't blame you for that take. I think that's, I think that's very fair. I think that's very fair. There, there are moments where you, you think something sort of climactic might take place and it sort of doesn't i've learned to kind of appreciate that about the song that it's that it's flat but it is a little long so yeah i don't know this song is not flat this is <laughs> yeah. a Lindsay special <laughs> what makes you think you're the one yeah Is what Fleetwood Mac sounds like when Mick doesn't play the drums, because <laughs> that is that has to be Lindsay banging away. It's got to be. Yeah, it's got to sure. be. And so here's the thing: I don't know if Lindsay was trying to come up with something like messy and sort of frantic. I actually think it's one of the tightest things that he's ever done with Fleetwood Mac. So inadvertently, I don't know if he's trying to sort of create chaos. But I think the song has a lot of direction. There's some guitar work that's extraordinary. I freaking love this song. This is this yeah. is another one that was on the double disc, and I was blown away by it. And then I learned that "Think About Me" and "What Makes You Think You're the One" are all, like they're on the same record. It was like, oh my god! Like, right? Yeah. I think that this song is very creative, very dynamic. This drumming thing that's going on, this guitar um, sort of work on the outro, the vocals cool that that high guitar layer during the the chorus, the every little thing piece is a really really neat layer. This is, I mean, I don't know if he was trying to create something that was very intricate and interesting, but you know whether that was the intent or not. I think this is just an extraordinary song here on the yeah. first side of this. I love it too. But but it's totally a Lindsay solo song, right? It, it we talked earlier about go insane. This sounds a lot like that album. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, it's just quirky rhythmically, and he's trying a lot of different things. So I really like the song too. I just it's hard for me to think of it as a Fleetwood Mac song. It's just so clearly Lindsay's singular vision. But again, it's it's still a Fleetwood Mac album. It's Tusk. It's it's. It's taking you on this wild ride of these different visions all in one. And that's cool. That's, that's what great albums often are. And so, but you get to this moment, it's like, wow, this really is the ultimate double album. You know, it just yeah. has everything on it. There was not much editing power going on here. 
Yeah, you're on a ride at this point. I mean, you, you think about the variety of what you've gotten thus far. And, you know, I, I think uh, what makes you think you're the one brings the power, which you don't get a lot on this album, but um, that one's got some, you know, it's got some muscle. Let's go to track seven. This is Storms. I like the fact that, you know, they could have easily kind of gone with that Stevie formula of the sort of Mick beat, um, which they could have layered on this um, much the same as they did on Sarah and much the same as they did on dreams. I kind of like that. It's stripped down. Um, You just got maybe a little bit of a kick stomp and then a little bit of a tambourine. But other than that, you're getting basically an acoustic song. And again, looking at the sequencing here, you, you know, of what Sarah brings to the table, what make, what makes you think you're the one brings to the table and then sort of bringing it down a little bit with storms. I, I actually think is, is, is very well placed and uh, you know, it's a solid kind of dreary, you know, Stevie song. Agree with all that. And for all those reasons, I, I really like it a lot as well. It's got a nice mood. You know, I think Stevie's at her best. Not when it's so kind of mystic that it's distracting. But there's an authenticity right. behind this one. You know, it's just, this is her kind of at her best. She's not trying too hard, yeah. which, you know, as a Stevie critic more than you, I think sometimes she just tries a little too hard to, to play up the Stevie character. Sure. Here, it, it's really, you know, genuine. It's just really authentic and really pure. And I yeah. love that. I love that. Yeah. I agree with that all around. Um, track eight, we're kind of getting to the end of disc one here. And uh, we got another... Actually, back-to-back Lindsay tracks here. Track eight is That's All For Everyone. Now, you can kind of hear this a little bit with the instrumentation with this sort of lush you know kind of swirling production and vibe to it that this was a song specifically that Lindsay notes you know he listened to that brian wilson smile material from the master tapes and basically said you know i want to go a little bit in that direction too with this kind of swirling atmospheric thing and uh, that's all for everyone definitely has that you can hear it And if you listen to Smiley Smile and you even listen to the recent, you know, stuff that Brian Wilson put out from the Smile Project, you can see that not only was Lindsay pretty influenced by this post-punk, you know, talking head stuff that we mentioned earlier, and we'll get that on the next track for sure, but also very interested in being a little bit more whimsical, uh, which I think we're hearing here with this kind of swirly uh, sound and he even mentions himself that he gained some inspiration from the uh, from that Brian Wilson material. What do you think of that's all for everyone here? Now it's like space rock, you know. I, I, again, Tusk offers different takes on sort of the avant garde packaged in a Fleetwood Mac package. I mean, it's it's again I mentioned Bowie's Low. I mean, it's still pop stars being pop stars, but it's wrapped up in this really creative out of the box. Thing. And this song is super out of the box. I really like it for some reason, which doesn't make much sense to me. 
there's something about the melody of it. It's not a super melodic song, but the chorus does have a memorable, in a weird way, catchy yeah. melody. It's a cool it's just vocal. Strangely catchy. It is a cool vocal for sure. Yeah. So strangely catchy is how I describe it. Well, Lindsay keeps the party going. In fact, he kind of cranks the party up a little bit here, I would say. Very interesting, weird vocal approach that we'll talk about in a second on track nine. Not that funny. Kind of got a little uh, little nutbush city limit to it, doesn't it, Nub? You know, it does. Yeah, it's it's that's a good call because it's got those early that early analog synthesizer sound. I don't know exactly what he's using there, but uh, it it sure is uh, <laughs> sure is memorable. That's for sure. He's it's having, a mess. I mean, the song's a mess. Yeah, know? he's having a good time on that, um, and I think that's again. It, it, it's very white album, right? I mean, it's kind of like quirky and he's having fun with it. And he's just sort of like, there's no rules. I think that was the the thing that Lindsay really wanted here. As you can tell, this is a, this is an artist who probably felt a little bit constricted by whether it was the record label or the commercial expectations or whatever. And basically just said like, screw it. Just going to like throw all the rules out the window and we're just going to do stuff. And this is kind of a good example. It's, this is, I hear a lot of this talking heads influence here. Yeah. You know, well, it's super it's, punk inspired. It's, it's out of tune. Yeah. The song is like totally out of tune. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I know, I know too. I was like, you know, there's this great book uh, about the entire making of this album. And they did a box set where they released some of that material. And from what I understand, they used to do like an eight minute version of this live. Yes. Which that is kind of hilarious. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. There are a few songs on here that sound, they sort of jammed out, you know, that turned into kind of eight, nine minute. And, and you know, at, at the time for a band like this to kind of do that showed that they were not interested in just getting up there and going through the motions and playing the hits. You know, these guys wanted to sort of explore musicianship and composition and all these things in a, in a unique and unexpected way. Right. So. All right, we're on the final track of disc one and uh, Stevie brings it yet again. This is Sisters of the Moon. So good. It's just so good. Dude. Dude. <laughs> it's just so I don't even know what else to say about it. It's just so good. I mean, it, it Stevie's just bringing it. Um, it's got great guitar work. I mean, the the, the Lindsay's guitar soloing and oh, just that sort of screams. top feel, even in the on the ryth- rhythm parts are so good, you know. And 
you know, again, it's, you're getting a lot of variety on this record, but boy, here you're getting something that's got a lot of mood, just awesome progressions, great musicianship, great guitar work. They would jam this out too, as well. Nub, they would take this to an eight or nine minute and you can only imagine how freaking cool that was. There, there are some recordings of this on the, the Tusk tour performances were good where they really dialed it up was on the Mirage tour. Mm-hmm. L- listen to some of the live recordings of this on the Mirage tour. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a powerful. Do you like this music. one? Oh, this is probably my favorite Fleetwood Mac song of all time. It's, oh, wow. it's easily my favorite Stevie Nicks Fleetwood Mac song. Yeah. It's the perfect combination of the depth of Rihanna with the explosiveness of Go Your Own Way. Because mm-hmm. my favorite part of Go Your Own Way is the outro guitar solo. Yeah. I mean, it's it's incredible. This has that, but it's got more of a, a Rihanna type of mood. Mick is crushing it on this song. If you listen to what he's doing from a, just from a percussive standpoint on cut time, double time, opening things up, the intro, he plays a key role in the building of it. When the drum beat actually first kicks in, that's a nice next step in the song's kind of, you know, build. It's it's just, it's quintessential Fleetwood Mac. It, it's it's the best song on Tusk. It might be the best song Fleetwood Mac ever made. It's just so good. I think your team, Stevie. This is easily a top five Fleetwood Mac song for me. And it's Stevie Nicks all the way. She wrote it. She sang it. I'm here in team Stevie. So listen, I think that's what we learned. What did we learn from disc one of this? That, um, Nubs fought it. He tried to fight against it, but I think he settled in on team Stevie. I guess we'll find out in part two where he lands. eh? <laughs> we'll find out where I land. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a wrap on disc one. So I don't know, Nub, what do you, what do you got up your, uh, polo sleeve there? for uh, part two or do you just not want to ruin it? No spoiler. You know? I don't think I'll do any spoilers, but I, I, I would start thinking about uh, your overall thoughts on Fleetwood Mac songs. I think okay. that might be a good idea for you to do. Well, if you want, you could, you could kick the episode off with a full, with a full throated apology. And you can also ask permission of me to join team Stevie. Well, we'll see if I allow it. I think that's that'd be a great way to start the episode. Why don't you take some time and go listen to the song Everywhere <laughs> and you will song. find out why I will never leave Team Christine ever. <laughs> Just listen okay. to that song alone. That's all you need. I think the one thing we can agree on is is we're both on pretty damn good teams. Yeah. I agree with that. I agree with that. <laughs> that brings us to a close of part one of episode 78 looking at the first half of Fleetwood Mac's Tusk the next part of the episode will bring more fun and excitement as well as marching bands and we will see you for part two of episode 78 as we look at the rest of Fleetwood Mac's Tusk take care of yourselves and take care of each other and we will see you soon see you